you can be pro Daisy without being accused of hating roses. <laughs> Daisies forever. That's right. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by CodeShip. CodeShip is a hosted continuous delivery service focusing on speed, security, and customizability. You can set up continuous integration in a matter of seconds and automatically deploy when your tests have passed. CodeShip supports your GitHub and Bitbucket projects. You can get started with CodeShip's free plan today. Should you decide to go with a premium plan, you can save 20% off any plan for the next three months by using the code RubyRogues. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use. Their support is excellent and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code RubyRogues, you'll get a $10 credit. This episode is brought to you by Braintree. If you're a developer or manager of a mobile app and searching for the right payments API, check out Braintree. Braintree's new V0 SDK makes it easy to support multiple mobile payment types with one simple integration. To learn more and to try out their sandbox, go to BraintreePayments.com slash RubyRogues. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 221 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jessica Kerr. Good morning. Coraline Ada Emke. Hello from Chicago. David Brady. I forgot how to podcast. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Just a couple of quick uh, reminders. First off, I am putting together Angular Remote Conf. So if you're into Angular, go check it out at angularremoteconf.com. And uh, I also have... Rails clips up. So if you're interested in learning how to do APIs with Ruby on Rails, that's what I'm kind of focused on right now. And then we'll, you know, we'll get into other stuff after I'm done with that. So uh, we also have a special guest this week, and that's Mike Parham. Howdy, everybody. Thanks for having me. You want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm Mike. Uh, I'm probably best known in the Ruby community for my work on Sidekick, uh, the background job processing framework. Um, but I'm a longtime open source developer. Previous to that, I did Dolly and a uh, bunch of half a dozen other gyms that were moderately successful. But yeah, I've been doing Ruby and, and Rails for eight years now, I guess, something like that. So yeah, that's been a, a good a good run. Very cool. Do you want to give us kind of a quick overview on Sidekick? Sure. Uh, Sidekick came out of my desire to have a background job processing framework that was uh, reasonably high performance. 
uh, I was working at a consulting company that was working with a client that had a huge farm of rescue. And they were running on, they were a JRuby shop, so they were running rescue on JRuby, uh, which is an incredibly inefficient architecture. Uh, you have the JVM, which is really big, and then you have rescue, which is single-threaded. So you're running a bunch of really fat JVMs to process jobs. They had, uh, you know, hundreds of these JVM rescue processes taking just gigs and gigs and gigs of memory and uh, probably, I think, a dozen or two dozen machines. And so I thought, you know, this is ridiculous. Uh, we need to get some multi-threading in here, and they can go down to maybe a machine or two machines and save a ton of money. And so that's why I started to build uh, Sidekick, um, is to build something that was sort of natively threaded and uh, and more high performance than what was out there at the time. Is performance still the main differentiator between Sidekick and Rescue? Uh, for sure. Rescue and Delay Job are still single-threaded. Uh, you still have to spin up uh, a process for every job that you want to concurrently process, uh, whereas Sidekick by default, runs 25 threads, so you'll process 25 jobs concurrently. So it's not unusual to see an order of magnitude performance increase when moving from rescue or delayed job to sidekick. One thing that you mentioned while we were um, emailing back and forth about what we wanted to talk about was that there was a difference between job runners and queuing systems. So, for example, uh, sidekick and rescue versus like RabbitMQ. Can you kind of explain what the difference is there? Because they seem to be used for a lot of the same things. Sure. Yeah, there's some subtleties here that I'm I'm sort of I'm paying attention to, but maybe maybe people miss. I I think of a background job system as something that integrates pretty tightly with the application code, uh, and it typically integrates really tightly with the language and runtime too. So with Sidekick, you actually create a class which represents a job that you want to run, and you effectively pass a, a set of method arguments to it. And then that method will be called in a sidekick process somewhere else. So th that to me is, is like background jobs. Uh, and they're much closer to the application. With something like message queuing, uh, where you have uh, maybe something like RabbitMQ, you don't have that tight integration with your application or with your code. You just send it a blob of bytes that represent your message. And it can be in any sort of format. It can, you're, you're responsible for serializing and deserializing it on both ends on the client and the, and the worker side. And typically it's, it's language independent. So you might be in queuing from a Perl process, uh, a message that will be processed by, uh, uh, you know, a Scala process or something like that. So yeah, I, t I think of background jobs as it's very tightly integrated with the application, whereas an MQ system is something where a bunch of different applications talk to each other through it. Does that make sense? Makes sense to me. It may be semantics, it may be uh, subtleties that don't matter to a lot of people, but that's kind of the way I see it. So, so with the background job, the real advantage there is you get to take advantage of your application code? Exactly. Um, because it's tightly integrated with your application, it's usually much simpler to spin off a background job than it is to send uh, a message to an MQ. So you'll, with RabbitMQ, for instance, if you want to integrate it into your application, you've usually got to develop some sort of client API and some sort of conventions for your messages and how they're serialized. Uh, and then on the other side, you've got to build yourself a worker process that processes those, those messages. So it'll use the RabbitMQ API to pull messages off and process them. There's nothing out there that will do that uh, automatically for you. And in fact, there has been one sort of bridging of RabbitMQ 
the MQ system into Ruby, and that's a, a, a gem called Sneakers, which does this work that I'm talking about. It sets up a convention for how to create a background job that is passed to RabbitMQ and then pulled off by a Sneakers process in um, somewhere else that, uh, that then runs your application code. So while queuing, like on RabbitMQ, can be used for decoupling, Sidekick and background jobs are explicitly not about decoupling. They're just about moving something off of your current thread. Exactly. That's the way I think of it. Rabbit is great when you're trying to communicate between distinctly different applications. Sidekick and rescue and delayed job are great when your application just wants to process a set of data in the background. So I'm curious, uh, going back to Sidekick and the difference between it and Rescue, how do you get that performance bump? Uh, it's all about threading. And I am lucky enough to have used Celluloid almost from the first, from almost from day one. Uh, I used Tony RCRA's Celluloid to make uh, threading easy to deal with. Um, I'm personally, I like concurrency and I like performance, but I think threads are a terrible API and I don't think anyone should use them. I choose to farm out my usage of Celluloid to Tony and his team building Celluloid. And so Sidekick actually doesn't use any threads internally. It doesn't use any mutexes internally. It uses Celluloid APIs exclusively to do all of its concurrency. And that makes things a lot easier to build, a lot easier to reason about, so that I have to deal with race conditions and sort of random crashes far less than if you're using a, a lower-level API like Threads. For those that aren't familiar with Celluloid, can you kind of give the... I, I don't completely, I guess, understand the difference between a Celluloid thread and a Ruby thread. Well, under the covers, they're the same thing, right? Celluloid right. is actually using Threads. But ce- the way that Celluloid exposes concurrency uh, through its APIs is much safer than using Threads directly. Celluloid is a manifestation of what's called the actor pattern. So you create objects, and those objects uh, run on their own threads. So when you call methods on these various objects, you're actually sending a message to another thread to execute that method. And so this way, you can have a whole bunch of asynchronous objects all sort of collaborating together, but they're not specifically synchronizing with each other. You're not having to use mutexes to coordinate directly. Uh, Celluloid handles all that for you internally. So it turns out to be a lot easier to reason about because you're thinking about how are these objects communicating with each other and not thinking about, do I need to lock this thing here? Do I need to worry about mutability of this call? You don't have to worry about any of that because Celluloid handles it all internally. So just to clarify one thing, and that is that it still has the same limitation with the gill and things so that you, you know, it's all single process. Correct. You you don't get any parallelism. Two threads will not run at the same time with MRI, no matter what you do. Right. But you do get concurrency. So while one thread is waiting on I.O., another thread will be running. Right. And since server-side applications are typically very I.O. heavy, Sidekick runs great on MRI, and you'll see real nice uh, speed out of it, uh, even with the gill. Uh, unless you're doing something like ray tracing or something really CPU heavy, but if you're doing that in Ruby, you're, <laughs> you're a kooky bird. <laughs> you just, you deserve a, what you get. Exactly. As a non-Ruby dev, what's the gill? So the gill is the uh, global interpreter lock. 
And oh, okay. Only one thread can be executing Ruby code at a given point in time. So Ruby releases the gil when you make an I.O. call. So if you're calling the database or memcached or Redis or whatever, it'll release the gil so another thread can execute Ruby during that time. Or if you have a native gem, the native gem can say, I'm going to release the gil because I know that this computation is thread safe. Is that why you don't have to worry about mutable data because in the end it's single-threaded anyway? The gil helps with thread safety, but it is not a catch-all. You know, you still get arbitrary spots where a thread can context switch. And mm. so if you do something like x plus equals 1, you can lose the increment because you're reading. You know, you read, you increment, you write, you can lose increments uh, due to race conditions, even with the gil. So since everything is running in the same process, when you use Sidekick or Celluloid in general, you should really watch out and not pass mutable data around? You can pass data around as long as you understand that when you're passing that data, you're also sort of passing ownership, right? Right. That's what Rust encodes specifically. Correct. I think in the type system so that you can't write in one place and at the same time read or write somewhere else. Correct. Well, yeah, typically with I, celluloid, because you have these objects that are asynchronous, you'll typically have a single object, a, a singleton maybe, that is responsible for data structure. And so to mutate that data structure, you'd call a method on that object. And then the thread internally will actually do the mutation so that it's safe. How is that different on JRuby? Well, JRuby certainly ups the ante, makes it a little trickier because you have true parallelism. That is for sure. Sidekick's use of Celluloid actors is safe, uh, and it's it runs on JRuby great. But yeah, you, you're you're absolutely right that you do need to be very you need to be more careful on JRuby than you do, do need to be on MRI. Is there a performance boost from using JRuby for Sidekick? I think the answer to that is probably yes. I mean, it, there's a question of how fast does it execute Ruby, just pure and plain and simple, just single threaded, and JRuby usually keeps up with MRI pretty well in that regard. But JRuby will also scale across cores, so you can be executing those 25 threads that I mentioned that Sidekick spins up. You can have 25 cores, and JRuby will execute 25 background jobs in parallel. From that perspective, there's going to be huge benefit to JRuby. Typically with MRI, you're going to run multiple processes anyways. So if you have an eight-process or an eight-core machine, you might run eight Sidekick processes so that you do get the benefit of all those cores. That makes sense. So then you get the benefit of having eight workers plus 25 threads working each of those, or however you want to think about it. But essentially, then you're getting the the parallel, well, the concurrency. I don't want to say parallelism, but you get the parallelism through the processes and the concurrency through the threads. Exactly. I've worked with actor systems in Scala. Mm -hmm. And in that case, we were always careful that any messages asked between actors were immutable. Because, yeah, of course, absolutely. it's on the JVM, so absolutely. there's lots of threads, right? And the beauty of the actor system is that within one actor, the actor will only ever one on one, run on one thread at a time. So within the actor, it's fine to, for it to mutate its own data. Exactly, and you know that only one method is going to be called on that actor at any given moment. So anything you do with you know, internal data to that, uh, to that actor uh, is thread safe automatically. Can you explain the actor model really quickly? Uh, sure. 
Uh, I mean, I think the simplest way to describe actors is they are just asynchronous objects, asynchronous instances. So when you do a, a foo.new, you can call methods on foo, but those methods won't execute on your thread. They're asynchronous, so you can't depend on the return value, for instance, mm. unless you explicitly say, I want to wait on the return value of this method. So typically the, what you're doing is you're using it more as like a message passing. You're not outsourcing logic to another object so that you can call it, calculate it, and work on the return value. You're just calling another object to say, do this. And that object will go do it in the back. So the way, the way that Sidekick uses it is Sidekick starts up a, probably a half a dozen different actors. Uh, it has what's called the fetcher, which is all it does is fetch uh, jobs from Redis. It has a manager. The manager is what calls the fetcher to fetch jobs. And then the manager manages all the processors, which are the, the actors that actually execute your job. So a processor says, okay, I'm ready for a job. It calls to the manager. The manager calls to the fetcher to say, give me a job. The fetcher passes it back to the manager. The manager passes it to the processor. The processor then executes it. So there's there's all this sort of asynchronous data flow that's happening within Sidekick constantly. But the point is, is that each actor has its own one responsibility. Did you... I think of active models as more OO than OO. Because like in Ruby, you talk about method calls as message passing. And in actor system, it's literally message passing. Right. And the original OO principle of tell, don't ask really happens in actor models. Yeah, it has to, kind of has to, right? Since everything's asynchronous. Right. And, and, and OO, oftentimes, the only thing you're using OO for is encapsulation. You just want to encapsulate this logic. Um, you're still going to call it synchronously to work on the re- return value. But with actors, you have to explicitly decide to do that. Was the actor model something you baked in from the beginning, or is that something you came to later? Uh, I baked it in immediately. I, I've worked on several different background job systems before Sidekick. At previous jobs, I, I've written, I wrote three different background job systems before I actually started writing Sidekick. So you could argue that I was uh, an expert, quote, you know, air quotes, in the field um, as much as one can be as a sort of hobbyist open source person. But yeah, I, I knew that I didn't want to deal with threads because I, I've programmed with threads enough to know that it's just not fun to do that stuff directly and, and to debug race conditions and that sort of thing. So I wanted something a, a little nicer. So I, I used Tony Arcieri, the creator of Celluloid. He had a previous actor system called Red Actor. And then uh, Rubinius actually ships with an actor API also. So my, my the previous background job system that I wrote, which was called Girl Friday, it used this actor API from Rubinius. And that worked out okay, but... I didn't like the API all that much. And then Tony started working on Celluloid, which was sort of his next generation RevActor. And I knew that because he'd had experience doing RevActor, he'd probably do a pretty good job on, you know, iteration number two. He'd learn from his mistakes and so on. He did Celluloid for about six months, and and then I just decided, hey, I'll, I'll use it on Sidekick. And so I did, and it worked out great. So there's definitely something to the right one to throw away idea. Yeah, yeah or, or two or three, right? Exactly. And also, use all the various different systems. You know, like I said, I'd been using Rescue at a previous client. I knew how Rescue uh, worked. I'd used Delayed Job at a previous job, so I knew how that worked. 
So I kind of I kind of had my own opinions on what were good API designs to include, what ones were bad that I that I didn't want to include. Uh, I'll give you an example. Sidekick uses uh, the middleware pattern like in Rack. So you you actually yield a block and that that allows you to do sort of before, around and after code snippets when a job runs. I decided to use middleware instead of callbacks uh, like Rescue uses and Rails loves callbacks. I personally find callbacks to be an anti-pattern and, and don't like uh, their usage. Callbacks so, are the devil. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I have a JavaScript podcast <laughs> where we, we discuss some of that. Yeah. So Sidekick doesn't use callbacks anywhere because I distinctly hate that, that pattern. So you're on version 3 right now, is that correct? Uh, Sidekick is on version, yes, yeah, 3.4 right now, I think. So what do you have planned for version 4? Oh, Lord. Sidekick is pretty stable right now, honestly. I'm pretty happy with it. I don't have, I don't have a gigantic roadmap for it. Um, I've got a Google Summer of Code fellow who is working in... Uh, he's in Russia, actually. Uh, shout out to Anton. But uh, he is working on some statistics and history for the web UI so that it'll track... Uh, job execution history and statistics, like how many failed, how many succeeded, you know, what the average time and standard deviation of your job execution was. So he's he's working on a plugin on that, and I'm I'm mentoring him on that right now. Um, but uh, I haven't I've been working. Well, the last couple months I've been working on Sidekick Enterprise, which I just released last week. Sidekick has sort of been in maintenance mode for the last few months while I work on that that product. What's different about Sidekick Enterprise? Oh, boy. So this kind of brings us into the commercial open source business model. How do you make open source viable and sustainable kind of topic? But when I started doing Sidekick, I realized that this was going to be a big project. There was going to be hundreds, if not thousands of users uh, using it. And so I would be getting a lot of support requests. I'd be getting a lot of issues, a lot of PRs. Um, in other words, there'd be a lot of maintenance and a lot of time, a lot of my time required to build Sidekick and support it like I wanted to support it. So I actually started the project with a mind of how do I make money? How do I make this sustainable for me? How do I justify my time uh, away from my family in helping perfect strangers on the internet? So I actually wanted to develop some sort of business model around Sidekick. And, and what I've wound up with is an open core model where Sidekick is free and open source for everybody to use, and then I sell commercial versions of Sidekick that have more features. So I ha- I've sold Sidekick Pro for a number of years now. Sidekick Pro is a, an enhancement of Sidekick that includes uh, a number of additional features that the open source version does not have. And then last week I introduced Sidekick Enterprise, which is a, a further variant on top of Sidekick Pro, which includes even more features. Uh, and so that way, I think that w- the model that I have right now is is really nice. It works really well. Sort of a small, medium, large kind of approach to you know selling something. Uh, you know, you go to a a fast food place and they ask you, "Do you want a small, medium, or large?" And, and the same is true of Sidekick. You know, do you do you want the the basics that work really well? Do you want something that has a little more features and really allows you to 
do a, a lot of really interesting things with background jobs, or do you want the ultimate, right? Something that really is good if you're building your entire business on top of Rails and Sidekick. What sort and of so, challenges does that pose in your regular, you know, your regular daily life to have to support these multiple versions? Uh, well, my day job has transformed from writing code for other people to being mostly a support person. I mean, most of my job every day is support. So I'm answering emails, I'm on Stack Overflow multiple times a day looking to see if there's any sidekick questions that need to be answered. You know, I troll through Reddit and Hacker News and all the various different sites uh, where there are developers who are posting questions and and chatting about various tools so that I can support and, and help answer people's questions. Yeah, I, I, there's two aspects to my job, which is just have a roadmap for where I want Sidekick, Sidekick Pro, and Sidekick Enterprise to go and build that. But there's also supporting my current customers and my open source users. So yeah, it's, every day is um, different and yet the same. Do you ever get bored focusing on one project all that time? And you've been doing it for how many years? Uh, I've been doing Sidekick for three and a half years now. You must really love it, which is awesome. <laughs> Just personally, I would be like, I would want to work on something else. No, I, I do love it. Performance and concurrency and asynchronous jobs are something that I've dealt with many times, as I mentioned before, and I've built them so many times that it is really something that I enjoy, uh, and I feel that I have the expertise to help build something that is really reliable and useful for people. So the only question in my mind, like when I started it, was how do I make this viable so I can actually make it my full-time job? And that, that's where the commercial sales come in. And that's why it's been a real blessing to see the community, for the most part, react very positively to it. And, you know, I've got over 500 customers now who have paid for it. And that really allows me to support them and support the whole breadth of the product full time. That's wonderful. Yeah. Because this this work, this running of jobs in the background, it like sounds super simple on the surface, but it is super hard to do it right. <laughs> And it's, it's fantastic that you love it and you're right. You're, you're expert at it and right. do it really well. You know, this, oftentimes the simple case is easy, but then the minute you start adding, you know how it is, right? We're all developers. Yep. You add a feature, <laughs> the code geometrically explodes, right, in complexity. So as you build all these features, as you build all these capabilities, the code base either quickly becomes a rat's nest or maybe you throw your hands up in disgust and just walk away from the project. But I think the fact that I had a number of opportunities to build previous iterations of it, kind of like Tony with his actor system, uh, allowed me to have a better sort of judge as to sort of APIs that I wanted to use and designs such that it's been relatively easy for me to build these features. The I haven't had to like redesign APIs much to add features. It's It's, it's actually worked out really, really well. So yeah, I've been really happy with it. And just like Celluloid has made it so that you can use threads without dealing with threads, Sidekick lets other developers use background jobs without and do it well without getting into all those complications. Right, exactly. My, my belief over the, you know, the last decade that I've developed over the last decade has been that avoid building your own infrastructure if possible. You should be reusing infrastructure like Sidekick, like Rack, that make HTTP easy to do, that make background jobs easy to do, so that if you want to fan out a lot of work in parallel, you just 
you create a thousand sidekick jobs and sidekick will just churn through it in, you know, 30 seconds. And that way you don't have to deal with threads, you don't have to deal with locks, you don't have to deal with any of that kind of stuff. So that's, I think maybe I'm violently in agreement with you, but uh, that's the whole idea behind sidekick and, and what I do. One thing that I've been using, I've been using rescue, I'll admit to that, <laughs> but uh, I've been using rescue and then I've been using rescue scheduler to mm-hmm. schedule specific jobs. So you basically just get this plugin that you can hook into rescue. Do you have the same kinds of things for uh, sidekick? Yeah. So when I created sidekick, one of the things that I didn't like about rescue was the fact that you had to add on all these different gems to add features. It feels like Rescue on its own is very simplistic and just all it does is spin off work. That's at the heart of it. It's very simple. So if you want to do things like schedule jobs or if you want a web UI to see, to introspect your, your sort of jobs, you've got to add on all these different gems. And the problem with that is when you, when you version these things differently, you get incompatibilities really quickly and you have to deal with, you know, this UI is only compatible with Rescue 1.2 and this is compatible with 1.3 and up. Going back to the more features you add, the more complex your, your code base gets. The more gems you add, the more complex your versioning and your sort of bundler graph gets, your dependency graph gets. So what I tried to do from day one with Sidekick is build in all the features that I wanted into the Sidekick gem itself. So it does not, to me, you can do a ton with Sidekick without using any sort of third-party gems at all. So it's got Web UI built in, it's got the scheduler built in, and uh, delayed jobs built in. It has that concept of the middleware. It has a full API so that you can actually iterate through the data store in Redis. You can iterate through all the metadata about the job system. Yeah, so it, it probably has four or five different features that are sort of extra for rescue, which I, I felt were important from day one and, and, and should be in the base gem. If there is a feature that's not in Sidekick that you wish you had, is there a way to add that on, or do you just yeah, beg, absolutely. beg Mike? No, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I accept PRs. There's a healthy third-party gem ecosystem for Sidekick. You know, things like unique jobs. For the longest time, Sidekick did not offer unique jobs. So there's actually two different third-party gems which add unique job capability to Sidekick. And that feature is in Sidekick Enterprise also. So there's actually three different unique job solutions now. You can use one of the free open source ones, or you pay for Sidekick Enterprise and use the one that I that I wrote and support. A unique job, that's guaranteeing that a job runs once and exactly once? What it tries to do is ensure that you don't enqueue multiple of the same job at the same time. So if you say, for instance, sync this address to a third-party API, if that's your background job, you don't want to sync it multiple times, maybe. You just want to sync it once, and then it'll execute and sync what's in the database to your third-party, st- your third-party right. store. Uh, you don't need to sync it 20 times if the, if the user updates the address 20 times. Right. Uh, you know, especially if your queue is backed up, if that address sync job is still pending in the queue, there's no reason to push it again. So that's what Unique Jobs does, is it ensures that the client does not enqueue multiple copies of the same job if that job is still pending. Gotcha. That actually leads me to one of the questions that I like to talk about anybody that's doing kind of distributed messaging stuff. If you've got multiple things that are going to monkey with the address thing, like we talked earlier in the show about race conditions and, and, and those kind of problems, with Sidekick, do you see 
Well, you've got to be seeing this. I'm, I'm just curious to know how and where you're seeing people dealing with, like, do they try to go item potent so that things can be run multiple times without multiple side effects? Or are you seeing best practices in that? Are you seeing people just give up on item potency? Well, for sure, Sidekick actually has a wiki page called Best Practices, which actually says <laughs> make your jobs item potent. So uh, you're nice. dead on. Uh, great minds think alike, I guess, here. Uh, full um, seldom death, for sure. Yeah, but, uh, but uh, for sure I recommend item potency if you can. But this is not something that is specific to threading. This is not something that's specific to Sidekick. Uh, you know, if you've got 100 rescue processes running, they can get into an issue where the application data store gets into race conditions and maybe you sync an address twice or something like that. Who knows? But yeah, it's this is something that's endemic to sort of any type of system where you've got concurrency executing. And it's up to the application, really, to make sure that they're locking the data correctly or, like you say, designing their jobs correctly so that they do work in the face of, of multiple writers. I just realized I, I miss Josh because he would call for definitions whenever we use uh, jargon. For anybody listening that's new to distributed programming, item potency is this tendency that if you run a function, it will do the job. But if you run it twice will still stay in that state. So once the function has run, it won't keep changing. Like it won't keep flipping the bit back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It will set it to one place. And then if you run the job a hundred times or twice or whatever, it will stay in the new set. That's item potency. Right. So <laughs> this is a bit of a leading question. In fact, you know what? I'll just put, I'll just, I won't bury the lead. I'll just leave it to the lead. So I worked on a project a couple of years ago where we really, really, really liked Sidekick. And Redis was not an option for us. Mm -hmm. And I know you've had the discussion with people in the past because I was on the sidelines watching this discussion. How do you feel about people that want to try mixing in other transports? Right. Other data stores, you mean? Yeah. So there are people who have built uh, variants of Sidekick that work on, like, say, Amazon SQS. Mm -hmm. uh, for shops that are heavily invested in AWS, that just makes sense. Uh, I forget what the name of it is right now, but the fellow just essentially took the Sidekick code and imported it to SQS, which is totally cool as long, again, that's a LGPL issue. But I'm kind of of the mind that if a system tries to use multiple data stores, you're going to get sort of this half-breed Frankensteinian monster that mm -hmm. works okay in a lot of cases, but never works really well in all cases. Yeah. Right? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Let's use a car analogy. You can build a car that accepts multiple different engines from a, you know, a V4 to a V12 race engine, but it's not going to work well. Right? Mm -hmm. it, all, mm -hmm. You're going to be making all these trade-offs. And so a lot of people have asked uh, for Sidekick, you know, like, <laughs> I want to use MongoDB for my job store. Well, you know, I don't want to deal with that. Tony Arcieria was actually saying that I should use Kafka, which is a, another interesting idea. I, I totally respect Kafka, but the problem is, is that Sidekick is focused on the Ruby community. Kafka is not something that the Ruby community knows, understands, or cares about. So for me to support Kafka would be mm, a little bit crazy. And so I, I chose to just focus on Redis for the data store. It's Sidekick's one and only data store. I, I try to make it work as best as possible with Redis. Uh, and then if people need to scale beyond what one Redis can do, then I support sharding, mm -hmm. where you, you know, maybe you have separate applications using separate Redis instances. Um, maybe you split your workers across several different Redises. 
But um, it's very rare. I mean, a single Redis instance on good hardware can do over 5,000 jobs a second. Yeah. So it's it's quite rare for Ruby community to be doing that kind of volume. You know, that kind of volume, those those people are, are moving to Java or other types of, you know, really high-performance systems. Yeah. I realize I, I have misspoken, and, and I apologize, but I, th- I think the answer may still be the same. What I'm, what I'm hearing is that you've tuned Sidekick to work with Redis, and so switching in a different backend, you feel, might, might throw in like an impedance mismatch. Exactly. The thing that I misspoke is I did actually mean transport. The system that we worked on a couple years ago, we did use Redis as our data store, but Rescue was not going to work for us as the transport. And so we ended up basically doing like you, like you said, just uh, stealing your code and building out the same interface so that we could use Apollo MQ. Apollo MQ. I've never yeah. even heard of that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you are using a different data store then. You're not using. Uh, no. No, the instead of rescue, which is a queuing mechanism built on top of rescue, on top we, of Redis, you mean? Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's recursive. It's built on rescue is built on <laughs> rescue. Rescue is built on top of Redis. Right. And we still moved the large chunks of data for some of the jobs in Redis as the data store, but the queuing thing to send, you know, basically say, hey, you need to pick this job up out of the Redis data core. We sent over Apollo MQ, which is so yeah, it's a different I, protocol for communicating with your queuing yeah. system. Yeah. Basically, huh. it's yeah. I th- well, yeah. The link you've got here says Active MQ. It's of that breed. Huh. Well, so Sidekick's data format is, job data format is just a hash, a JSON hash. So from a data perspective, it's very simple and easy for any type of system to act as a client and push jobs. Because pretty much everyone can deal with JSON and hashes. But yeah, like you say, it's coupled really tightly with Redis, and I, I have no plans to change that. If you think of how complex even something like Active Record is, where it's trying to bridge the gap between systems that should just be standard SQL, right? Yeah, but, it turns but out never there's, are. There's tons of different yeah, edge cases. <laughs> think about how different Redis, Mongo, DB, and Kafka are, and try right. to bridge that gap. It's impossible. You, you can't be done. So I say that, and now somebody's going to start hacking on trying to build that, right? Oh, probably. Uh, <laughs> Actually, I think everybody listening is like, did a technical question just come out of David Brady? <laughs> I haven't asked a hard technical question on this show since 1990. Anyway, um, well, well, I've uh, I've never even heard of Apollo before, so uh, props to you for, uh, uh, for really Apache's, getting off the beaten path. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Apache's answer to RabbitMQ or Got AMQP. It. Yeah, I mean, I'd heard of ActiveMQ when I was a Java developer, uh, you know, a decade ago. Mm-hmm. ActiveMQ was sort of a thing that people used, but maybe I guess Apollo is maybe a next generation version of it or something. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you've answered the next question, which was the other problem that we were having was encoding. And we wanted to be able to encode using like a standard encoding, like protobuf or whatever. If you extract the transport and you extract the encoding, you now actually have Sidekick able to talk to something that isn't even programmed in Ruby. You can talk to a .NET service on a different server. That's the big win that we were trying to get. But I just realized now that, yeah, with jobs being stored as JSON, that completely answers that. Yeah, I, and I'm all for protobuf, like for really high-performance systems. The question to me is, is when you're dealing with MQ and you're talking across applications, to me that should be a more open, extensible, readable message format and not yes. just binary. Not just binary. Yes. 
So, you know, that's a perfect example of using HTTP to connect disparate systems, right? HTTP is nice because it's text-based. It's relatively easy to debug. Uh, there's good tools for debugging it. So, yeah, the question is, is at what point do you use a binary sort of format and what point right. do you use a simpler right. text-based format that humans can read? Right. Well, and, and I don't think it was binary versus text at the time. It was something that we could just drop in and tell the, the .NET team, just call this, you'll get your struct, you'll be fine. Make it easy for Visual Studio, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Have you stored the jobs as JSON since forever? Or is that new, yeah. recent versions? No, it's that's since day one. Uh, in fact, the format is, is Rescue's format. So I actually blatantly stole Rescue's job format so that I could be backwards compatible with Rescue, so that right. you could migrate from Rescue to Sidekick relatively easily. Nice. So you can actually enqueue jobs using the Rescue API and have Sidekick pick them up and process them. It's pretty magical. <laughs> yep. No, that's very cool. Is that what gave you compatibility with ActiveJob on Rails 4? No, Active Job is an adapter layer above all the different sort of client APIs that all the different job systems expose. So there is a sidekick adapter for pushing an active job to sidekick, and there's a delayed job adapter, then there's a rescue adapter. So the message format does not need to be the same between the different systems. The active job adapter handles creating the job. Got it. But what's nice about the the active job adapter is that I think it's one line of code for Sidekick. Really, because Sidekick just takes a hash of data, the line is just calling the client API with that hash. You know, the uh, the name of the class, the the arguments that it got, and that sort of thing. So it's actually really really easy to read. So I, I want to dig into one other thing, and that is how exactly we talked about. You've got like the open source, and then you've got the pro, and then you've got the enterprise. I'm curious how you make that all work. I mean, how do people actually get the pro and enterprise versions? Do you just give them a version key or something? It also seems like, since this is Ruby, that people could technically just steal it. So what I have is a private gem server that mm -hmm. has basic authentication on it, so that when you purchase it, I have a, a Ruby script actually running on my server that will generate a user, just a random username and password, and grant you access to my Apache gem server. And then it's just a, it's a line in your gem file. So you, you say the source is on Mike's private gem server and uh, the gem is, is Sidekick Pro or, or Sidekick Enterprise. And so it's really easy to, uh, to understand. There's nothing for the user to really to do aside just to add the three lines to their gem file and then they have access to it. It's, it's really straightforward. It is plain Ruby code. I prefer to keep it that way so that my customers can debug the code if they have problems so that they can sort of sort of understand the implementation and sort of any limitations to it. I'm selling business tools to businesses and businesses in general, they buy their stuff. And I'm also selling to developers and developers understand that, that this stuff is, is hard to build. It requires an expert really to build this uh, high quality sort of products and they understand that that support is important also and so that you need to be able, uh, a person needs to be able to work on this stuff full time and and actually uh, make money so uh, you know people uh, for the most part are paying for it I don't necessarily track or, or look for piracy at all but the sales are going well enough to that I can support myself such as it is and and I think the larger question here is is one of how do open source projects make themselves sustainable I was going to ask that next. 
certainly this isn't a black or white issue. There is a, a large gray area, a spectrum of open source projects from a person who builds a time-date library that is really simple to someone like myself that's building a large complex with lots of moving parts that has dozens of features and hundreds of customers. There's a broad spectrum of price points, of possible business models, uh, etc. So th there's no there's no one easy answer here, um, but I'm certainly happy to be to talk about you know sort of what I did and and the trade offs that that I've had to make. If somebody is getting ready to launch an open source project or they've got an open source project that they've been working on for a while and they're starting to think, you know, it'd be nice to get some financial support for this, how do they get started doing that? What I always tell people is, is have an end goal in mind. What do you want to do with this project? Do you want this project to last for the rest of your life? Do you want it to last for a decade or do you want it to last for maybe a year? Maybe you'll, you'll just work on it for a year. Um, you know, Jessica said earlier that she couldn't imagine working for three and a half years on something. She'd want to do something else. So that's perfectly fine. That's a perfectly acceptable answer. Uh, in that case, maybe, maybe you charge, maybe you do a Kickstarter because you're going to get sort of a one time, maybe you do a Kickstarter for $20,000 and then you build something over six months and then that's it. It's done. It's mm -hmm. out there. People can use it for free. For me, I said, I want to do this for the next five to 10 years, maybe make it my life's work at this point. I don't know. But that means that I need to be able to do it as a full-time job. And that means no Kickstarter. I'm not going to do sort of NPR pledge drives every six months to get a salary. That means I need to have a product that I'm selling constantly. And it also means that I, I choose to sell as a subscription, not as a one-time fee. And that's because I'm constantly having to support everybody I'm constantly adding new features, adding bug fixes. Software, at least as big as Sidekick, is, is generally never done. There's always stuff to work on. There's always bugs to be fixed. And so you have to have that steady income that subscriptions allow you. So there's, there's a lot of different possibilities you can do here based on what your end goal is for your project and the size of your project. Uh, like I said, Kickstarter, you can do a one-time fee, maybe just charge people $500 to buy the thing. And then they have it for as long as they want to use it. Or you can charge them subscriptions like I do. Uh, licensing is also a big issue. So BSD is very permissive uh, and really makes it tough for you to have a commercial version. If people can just fork your code and make their own commercial version uh, or add whatever they want. I choose to license Sidekick as LGPL uh, so that if people do want to add on to Sidekick themselves, they have to keep it open source. Gotcha. And that's LGPL on the open source version, and then... And then there's uh, the, the commercial versions have their own commercial license. Right. All right, then, before we get to the picks, I just want to acknowledge our silver sponsors. Once again, this episode is sponsored by Braintree. Go check them out at braintreepayments.com slash rubyrogues. If you need any kind of credit card processing or payment processing in general, they are a great way to go, and we appreciate them sponsoring the show. This episode is sponsored by CodeSchool. CodeSchool is an online learning destination for existing and aspiring developers that teach us through entertaining content. They provide immersive video lessons with in-browser challenges, which means that each course has a unique theme and storyline and feels much more like a game. Whether you've been programming for a long time or have only just begun, CodeSchool has something for everyone. You can master Ruby on Rails or JavaScript, as well as Git, HTML, CSS, and iOS. And more than a million people around the world use CodeSchool to improve their development skills by learning or doing. You can find more information at CodeSchool.com slash RubyRogues. David, uh, do you want to start us off with picks? I'm ready. I'm ready. Holy crap. I just have one pick today. And that is a fantastic blog post. It's 
It's called Citation Needed, and it addresses the question of why do we use zero-based array indexes versus one-based array indexes? And if you think you know the answer, you're probably wrong, because you're probably going to say something like, well, pointer-based arithmetic and a pointer plus zero equals the original pointer, and da-da-da-da. Nope, you're wrong. The reason is so that the president of IBM could do yacht handicapping. And uh, there are some even greater gems in this blog post. It's, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. It does end up boiling down to a tiny bit of efficiency. That plus one or minus one was really desperately needed in the 1960s. And that's kind of why we have inherited zero-based indexing. And the blog post is absolutely fantastic with the the sources and kind of the mind-blowing stuff in there that this is one of those things that we've just always taken for granted in computer science and there's a really good historical reason for why we do it that's better than what you thought so that's my pick is uh, the citation needed blog post all right Coraline, what are your picks the theme for my picks today is teaching kids how to program so i have a couple of board games that i want to talk about the first is called Codemaster by a company called think fun and it claims to teach kids how to think like a computer. It's basically a fantasy adventure game in which you harvest power crystals and continue to a destination portal to take you to a new world and a new logic challenge. So there are 60 logic puzzles, and they help players develop a mental model of how computers work. In each level, there's one specific sequence of actions that leads to success, and basically it trains kids to think about how programming works. So that's the first pick. The second one is also a board game called Robot Turtles. It's actually, it was uh, kickstarted and it's the most backboard game in Kickstarter history. It teaches programming fundamentals to kids ages four and up from coding to functions and lets them control a silly turtle. Players dictate the movement of their turtle tokens on a game board by playing code cards. And if they make a mistake, they can use a bug card to undo a move. It's inspired by the logo programming language, which if you're old enough to remember that was pretty cool. And let's kids write programs with playing cards for two to five players. So those are my picks. All right. Jessica, do you have some picks for us? I have one pick. Uh, something that I've been looking at for possibly using it at work for automated provisioning of AWS instances and VPCs. We're building that right now. I think freaking everybody's building that right now. As Zalando has open sourced their version, it's called Stoops which is S-T-U-P-S, looks like Stups, but it's German, so it's Stups. Uh, and I think that one's really promising. It's one to look at if this is something that your company is working on. In particular, I like there's a diagram on the Stups homepage of the different components, and it's kind of fascinating. There's like 20 different little pieces that each do some tiny portion of it. And while it's sometimes a little bit frightening, I think it's really cool that this is where architecture is going these days, smaller pieces. Awesome. I've got a couple of picks here. One is is another uh, learn-to-program thing. It's called Elevator Saga, and I played with it for a little while. You basically wind up putting in uh, piece-by-piece uh, ways of making the elevator get to the right place and deliver people within a time period. And so if you make it take too long or things like that, then it, it fails you. And it's an in-browser JavaScript thing that you can use to uh, help kids learn to program. Uh, the other one is I was interviewed on Developer on Fire, which is a new podcast. And I talk a lot about the shows and how that all works and encourage people to go out and try new things. So if you're interested in kind of 
hearing me on the other end of things where it's I'm not just part of the discussion, but I'm actually being interviewed, then you can go check that out, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, Mike, do you have some picks for us? I do have a couple. My first one is Model View Culture. Uh, which is a website devoted to diversity, and I'm providing them a disservice in, in describing it, but uh, it, it talks about the, our tech culture and increasing the diversity. And um, one thing over the last couple of years that Twitter has taught me is the pain that a lot of, a lot of minorities in the tech community feel and the aggressions that they receive every single day. And so it's been a real educational uh, experience for me. So I actually subscribed a few months ago and have been reading their zines that come out once a quarter. And I encourage, you know, other people to do the same and, and educate yourself about the uh, problems that our, that our culture has. Uh, my second pick is Plasso, P-L-A-S-S-O. Plasso is the e-commerce system that I use to sell Sidekick Pro. And it's a really nice system that other developers can use if they're interested in selling a commercial version of their software. Plasso makes it really dead simple to have a Stripe account and then use Plasso as sort of their checkout page and their product page for their for their software product. So you don't need to do you don't need to have a server, you don't need to do anything. It's a really nice um, beautiful looking website, really useful. My third pick is any talk by James Mickens. James is uh, I think he used to be a researcher at Microsoft. And he is one of the funniest people I've ever seen at uh, technical conferences. Every talk he gives is hysterical. And I watched uh, a talk of his recently called Not Even Close, The State of Computer Security, where he talks about how computer security is essentially doomed from the start and is pointless. Uh, <laughs> a bit of a negative vibe to the talk, but uh, he does it in such a way that it's, it's hysterical. Um, so I, I, I strongly recommend people, uh, you know, search for his name and, and, uh, and take, a, take a look at any talk that he's given. Very cool. If people want to follow up uh, with you or have questions about Sidekick, what are kind of the best ways to, uh, to do that, to follow you and to follow the project? Uh, the best way is, uh, well, I'm on Twitter all the time, every day. You can certainly open issues on GitHub. We have a mailing list that if you're interested in receiving more email, you can subscribe to the mailing list. But yeah, any any way that you can get in touch with me uh, would be welcome. I, I do have a policy where for my open source stuff, I prefer not to get private email. Uh, I prefer to keep things in the public. So I would rather have people open a GitHub issue than to email me privately, for instance, if they have sidekick questions. Very cool. Well, thanks for coming, Mike. It was fun to talk and fun to explore some of the stuff. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit cachefly.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay.